If you have your Bibles, turn today to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. The Queen Mary was a luxury ship that was launched in 1936, and it spent the next four decades sailing the oceans of the world. When it was retired, it was uh, parked at the dock at Long Beach, California, and turned into a hotel and museum kind of thing. And they were going from uh, one end to the other and refurbishing the, the ship prior to that. And they took the smokestacks off to refinish them. And when, the, when they were lowered down to the dock, the smokestacks collapsed in on themselves and just basically crumbled. And what they discovered was that over all those decades on the ocean, more than 30 coats of paint had been put onto those smokestacks to cover up the rust. No one took the time to fix the rust. They just kept painting over it. And so there was really nothing left but a shell. The rust over the years had completely corroded the steel underneath. What, what looked good on the outside actually had no substance on the inside. Last week, we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that the Israelites rejected God as their king, and they demanded to have a king of their own so that they could be like all the other nations. And God warned them sternly that this choice was going to bring disaster upon them, but they refused to listen. So they got a king who from all outward appearances looked like the perfect king. Problem was, they soon found out that there was no substance on the inside because he didn't have a heart for God. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're told in verse 1 that there was a powerful, influential man who lived in that area by the name of Kish. And verse 2 says this, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. And he, that is Kish, had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. Now, I know when you read this, you're thinking of me. Just please try to separate that. I don't want there to be any confusion. I know. It's a... Sometimes I have to make sure you're actually listening to what I say. Clearly, you are. Thank you. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. So we're introduced now for the first time in the Bible to this man named Saul. And oddly enough, uh, today, by the way, we're just going to do kind of an overview of chapters 9 to, to 15. So we get this introduction of Saul, and, and strangely enough, the rest of chapter 9 goes into great detail about Saul going out to look for some of his father's donkeys that had gotten loose. Now, I'll leave that to you to pursue on your own if that interests you. But basically, what I, what I want to say about that long search that Saul went on was that he wasn't just, he thought he was just wandering and rambling and looking. But even in our moments of seemingly lost wandering in life, God is still at work. Because that search for the lost donkeys eventually caused Saul to bump into the prophet Samuel, 
And God confirmed to Samuel that this man, Saul, was the man that he would appoint and anoint as king. So chapter 10, Samuel anoints Saul as king. And in verse 8 of chapter 10, Samuel gives him these instructions. He says, You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Now just tuck that verse away in your mind for now because it's going to be very, very important in just a moment. Well then, Samuel calls all the people together and he warns them once again about their sin of demanding to have a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 19, he says this, But today you have rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversaries, your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. But as you'll read on in chapter 10, you'll see that his words of warning once again didn't phase the people at all because you get down there towards the end of chapter 10 and all the people are shouting, long live the king. Now the amazing thing is that even though this is not the course of action God wanted, as I said last week, God still did not abandon his people. God gave Saul every opportunity to succeed, to rise to the occasion as a godly man. God actually sends his spirit to empower Saul. And in chapter 11, Saul wins a great military victory over the Ammonites. And so God is, he's still loving his people and trying to look out for them, even though this was not what he wanted and so Saul wins this victory in chapter 11. Now everyone is really excited about Saul. But in chapter 12, verse 12, Samuel warns them again about their foolish choice to push God aside and set a king over them. 1 Samuel 12, 12. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Verse 13. Now therefore... Here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. In other words, God has given you exactly what you demanded to have. He says it again in verse 17. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain so that you will know and see what a great evil you have committed in the sight of the Lord by asking for a king. And now, for the first time, for the first time since way back in chapter 8, when this mess started, it begins to dawn on the people what they've done. Verse 19 says this, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. And now we're going to see the consequences of their decision start to play out. Yes, they got a king who looked like the perfect king. 
He was the envy of all the other nations by his looks. But Saul's real motives and his real heart are about to be uncovered. So I told you to tuck away that verse back in chapter 10, verse 8, when Saul was told to go to Gilgal, very important place. We've heard that name many times now through our studies. A lot of important things happen there. He's told specifically, go to Gilgal, wait for seven days, but also wait until Samuel arrives and shows you what to do next. So we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. And Saul waited seven days for the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. That's literally his soldiers were scattering from him. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me, and he offered the burnt offering. Now this is a real problem. Saul obeyed the first part of the command. He waited seven days. But he did not obey the second part of the command, waiting until Samuel arrived to show him what to do. Now, we don't know the exact timing of how all this played out. Maybe it was near the the very end of the seventh day, and Saul just got anxious and assumed that Samuel was not going to show up at all. So instead of obediently waiting for Samuel to come and show him what to do, Saul just took matters into his own hands. I'm glad we never do that in our lives. We wait for God, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we've obeyed some of his commands, but you know what, man? It's Friday at four. I can't wait anymore. I'm just going to do my own thing. The problem, one of the problems was Saul was not a priest. He was not allowed to do this. And what we learn here is something important. You see it on your screen. Partial obedience is disobedience. Now, don't take my word for that. Look at verse 10, 1 Samuel 13, 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Uh Uh-oh. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will come down now upon me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And what we see now starting to be revealed in Saul's life is that instead of taking responsibility for himself, he begins making excuses and blaming other people. And we're starting now to see the rust underneath Saul's perfect outward appearance. Now, some people today might look at what Saul did and say, well, what's wrong with how he handled this? I mean, he used logic and human reasoning. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is when you and I override God's commands with our own reasoning, that means we trust ourselves more than we trust him. Can I say that again? When you and I override God's commands with our own reasoning, it's exposing something in us. It's showing that we 
trust ourselves more than we trust him. God is looking for people who will trust whatever he says and obey it completely, whether it makes sense or not, whether it fits into their schedule or not, whether it puts them at risk or not. He's looking for people who will trust him, not themselves. Isn't that what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. People who obey God, trust God. People who don't obey God, trust themselves. The thing Saul was judged for here was that he did not obey the clear command of the Lord. Samuel really drives home that point in verses 13 and 14. Just look at how many times the word commandment or command, commanded are used here. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but, oh boy, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Are we starting to see the pattern? The reason Saul didn't obey God is also hinted at in that verse there. It's because he didn't have a heart that loved God, that lived for God, that honored God above all else. We're going to get much deeper into that next week, God willing, in chapter 16, as we begin to look at the life of David. But this man who looks so perfect on the outside has just exposed who he's really living for on the inside. The things that we're starting to see him say and do reveal to us that Saul didn't have a heart after God's own heart. Saul was all about Saul. And sadly, this is just the beginning of his downward spiral. Well, more battles take place in chapter 14. And then in chapter 15, Saul is given another opportunity to obey the Lord. Now, buckle your seatbelts for this one. <clears throat> He's told to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Every person, man, woman, and child, even right down to every ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Now, that's a very difficult thing for us to process. Because at first glance, it would seem that we're dealing with a God who is unkind and unloving. But the Bible must be taken in context. Chapter 15 is not a random knee-jerk decision by God to indiscriminately wipe out an entire nation. In fact, chapter 15 is actually evidence of just how patient and long-suffering God is with people who reject him. God had put up with these people's rebellion for hundreds of years. And what's happening here is not warfare, it is judgment. 
just as we looked at with the city of Jericho. God is using the Israelites to finally bring about judgment on people who have been thumbing their noses at him for hundreds of years. We touched on this briefly back in Exodus and Deuteronomy. The beginning of this with the Amalekites goes back to when the Israelites were traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. They were going through the wilderness. The Amalekites snuck up and attacked their weakest and most defenseless and helpless people who were lagging behind the group. It was a cowardly attack. And for generations afterward, the Amalekites were a constant enemy of Israel and God. And because of their ongoing rebellion and their constant ongoing unwillingness to repent, God said, In Deuteronomy 25, I don't have this verse, but he said in Deuteronomy 25 down towards the end, and I quote, I will blot out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. Now, folks, there's a lot more we could say about that, and you can research that on your own. But as as I've told you before, we must understand that sin will be judged by God. The amazing thing to me, though, is that God is so patient, that he waits so long, that he gives us so many opportunities to repent. He waits, he calls, he waits, he calls. And this nation had continually attacked the Israelites. They had turned away from God. They were doing horrific things. And in God's infinite justice and wisdom and righteousness, which you and I can never understand this side of heaven, God said, time's up. And I'm now going to use Saul and Israel at this point in history to do what I said hundreds of years earlier in Deuteronomy 25. I'm now going to blot out the memory of these people from under heaven. You ever met anybody who said they were an Amalekite? No, you haven't, because there aren't any left. So Saul has been sent to carry out God's judgment on these enemies of God, and the instructions were crystal clear. God commanded him to completely destroy everyone and everything. Nothing was to be spared, nothing. So off Saul goes to carry out the Lord's command, and what's the next stinking thing we read in chapter 15, verse 9? But, there it is again, but Saul and the people spared Agag. He was the king of the Amalekites. They spared him, along with the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, and the best of everything else. They were unwilling to destroy them, but they devoted to destruction all that was despised and worthless. Now, did Saul obey God? Someone might say, well, He did partially obey, so now's a good time to remind you what I said before. Partial obedience is disobedience. And nothing makes that more clear than the verses that follow. Verses 10 and 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. Now, that doesn't mean God didn't see it coming. It means that grieves the heart of God. That Saul didn't take this opportunity and use it for good to obey God. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. 
that Saul obey God? Not according to God. And Samuel was grieved and cried out to the Lord all that night. Verse 12, and when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, he was told, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, he has set up a monument for himself, and he has turned and gone down to Gilgal. I mean, this almost leaves us at a loss for words. This guy has just blatantly disobeyed God. And what does he do next? He sets up a monument to himself. Verse 13, and Samuel went to Saul. And Saul said to him, now Saul sees him coming and he runs out to greet him with this wonderful spiritual sounding greeting. Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, what then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Do you see how ridiculous this is? God's instructions had been clear. Saul was to put everything to death, including all the oxen and sheep and camels and donkeys. And Saul says, hey, Samuel, I've done everything the Lord commanded me to do. While all around him, the evidence of his sin is screaming out. Do you see how sin blinds us? And even when he's confronted head on with the evidence of his sin, he not only continues to lie, but he blames his sin on other people. Verse 15, and Saul said, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet or stop, it can be translated. And let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said, speak. Verse 17, and Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not, did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? I mean, he's saying, Saul, do you not realize God took you from nothing? He promoted you. He set you up as king. Do you not understand what he's done for you? Verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey? There it is again. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Now, I don't know about you, but you would think that when this mighty, prophet of God is confronting you face to face about your sin, that you would fall on your knees and begin repenting and crying out for mercy. Not Saul. He fires right back. Verse 20, and Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which, they should, which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now, this is amazing. Saul is now claiming that he's going to take the very 
product of his disobedience and use it as a sacrifice to God. The reason I didn't obey God was so that I could have more stuff to sacrifice to God. Hmm. I'll let you think through that one on your own for your own life. Verse 22, and Samuel said, does the Lord have as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And the answer is no. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Verse 23, for rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. Wow. And stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then Saul said, I have sinned, but honor me now. Honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Now I want to ask you a very important question. Is this true repentance? It sure looks like true repentance. It sure sounds like true repentance. Saul is saying all the right words. But what do words mean? They mean nothing without action. They mean nothing without follow-up. And we know that his repentance wasn't genuine just because we kind of know the story. Because his life never changed after this point. In fact, it got worse. See, people can spout off about following God and loving God and repenting and turning from this and that. Folks, the proof is in the pudding. True repentance is followed by change. That's literally what the word means. Repentance means to turn around. It means to change course. Saul knew all the right spiritual-sounding things to say, but it's clear that his heart was never given to the Lord. I'll give you one peek into that here quickly. <clears throat> this is so easy to miss. There's one phrase that Saul has repeated over and over again in these verses we've read. It's not something that would ever really catch our attention, but boy, is it telling. Multiple times in what we've just read, Saul kept saying to Samuel, "'Your God.'" Not my God. Ooh. When you read the words of David, who comes next, oh, David cries out. He calls him my God. 
Saul never does that. Verse 15, verse 21, verse 30, your God, Samuel, call out to your God. It's very telling. Saul doesn't have a genuine relationship with God. And he wasn't, you know, if, if we follow the pattern of what we just read, he wasn't the least bit interested in repenting until he heard that God had rejected him as king because that's what mattered most to him. When he heard that his title was going to be stripped away, he suddenly said, oh, hey, hey, let's go worship your God and just fix all this. And he also had the nerve to say, after it all, Samuel, please honor me in front of the elders and before Israel. Can you believe this guy? Saul's biggest concern was maintaining his image in the eyes of the people. Samuel, please, I don't want to look bad. Wow. He cared more about his own reputation than he cared about God's reputation. And we'll see that the opposite with David in a few weeks. As Goliath is standing there cursing Israel and cursing God, the thing that ticks David off is that Goliath is profaning the name of his God. That's why he goes and kills Goliath. It's like, ain't nobody going to talk about God that way. Why? Because he was my God. See, when a person's, this is so revealing about Saul, because when a person's heart is truly committed to God, the first, the very first sorrow they will feel when they sin is knowing how much their sin has hurt God. When Joseph was tempted to commit adultery, his immediate response was, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? That's what kept Joseph from stepping into sin. Not that he might get caught. He said, I'm not going to do this. This would hurt my God. When David was called out for his sin, he said to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's so telling. Boy, what a horribly sad introduction these chapters are to Israel's first king. I hate to say it, but Saul shows us how not to live. And we're going to see more of him in the coming weeks as his life intertwines with David's life. He shows us how not to live. And the lessons for us are clear and we cannot afford to miss them. And so I want to close by just boiling it down to three questions that may help us process this for ourselves as we leave here today. Number one, do we ever, like Saul, override God's commands with our own reasoning? Oh man, you know what God's telling me to do doesn't make any sense. I mean, the timing is just all off. So I'm going to obey, but I'm going to do it in my own way. Number two, do we ever, like Saul, shift the blame of our sin onto someone or something else? It's not my fault. It's my parents. It's my circumstances. It's my spouse. 
And finally, number three, do we ever, like Saul, settle for partial obedience and try to convince ourselves that we've obeyed? God sees partial obedience as rebellion. And here's what I want you to know as we finish today and prepare to step into chapter 16 next week. Our answers to these questions flow out of the condition of our heart. And we're really going to unpack that next Sunday. I pray that we would all say, Lord, I want to worship you with a heart that is fully yours. Or to put it another way, Lord, I don't ever want to worship you with a heart that is not fully yours. So come, Lord, search my heart. Go into all the places of my heart. Shine a light there, Lord, and show me any areas where I'm still not trusting you. I'm trusting in my own reasoning because I think I know better than you, God. We would never say that because it sounds so silly, but that's what we're saying. God, I know you're commanding me to obey you in this area, but I just... uh, I can't do that. It doesn't make sense. I'm going to override you. I'm, I'm going to follow my own reasoning. Lord, search my heart and expose any areas where I may be covering something up. I'm unwilling to bring it into the light and confess it and repent of it. And somehow in the foolishness of my sin, I've actually come to believe that I'm going to get away with this. God, remind me that I won't and remind me most of all that my secret sin is displeasing to you and you will never honor me as long as I hide my sin. God, search my heart and show me any errors where I still have not made you king. You know what that means in modern day English? It means that you're running the show. You're calling the shots. You're making the decisions. And the way that we are supposed to live our lives is, as Paul said, to get up every morning and say, Lord, put me to death again today. I want to die to myself so that you can live through me. Because you are Lord. I am your servant. And we all today pray Lord, come and give me a heart that is fully devoted to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you once again for the truth and clarity of your word. There's just no way we can misunderstand this unless we want to. I think the struggle for us, Lord, is that I believe everybody sitting here in this place, everybody watching online who truly knows you, they want to live for you. They want their heart to be fully committed to you. They want you to be king over every area of their lives. But Lord, we all battle with our flesh. We all battle with sin. And so it discourages us and it defeats us and it makes us think that there's just no point in trying I pray, God, as we begin to look at the life of David next week, we'll see he was a man after God's own heart, a man who cared more about God's reputation than his own, and yet he failed. 
and yet you loved him. So Lord, in our failings each day, when we fall short of what we truly want to be for your sake, remind us, remind us that it's the desire of our heart that you look for. You know we're dust. You know we're going to fail. And yet, Lord, you're just looking for someone whose heart truly longs to live for you despite it all. God, I believe that's this church. And I pray you would honor that. I pray you would lift these beautiful people up in your arms and bless them for their love for you, their devotion to you, their desire to truly follow you. And I pray that for all of us, over the course of time, with the ups and the downs, the good and the bad, the victories and the defeats, I pray that through it all, one thing would be true of us, one thing would be consistent in our lives, and that is that we long to have a heart for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.